Welcome into District 1 Sports. Mike and Mike are back with you for another week. It's been an actual full week since we last talked to you. We were doing about two to three episodes a week as the Wizards were going through uh, the playoffs, the first round. That quickly ended, so we're back to our weekly schedule here. Micah, we're going to talk about mandatory minicamp. There are a lot of observations that we have, things that we want to discuss, but I have to start with the Washington Wizards. Hasn't been much Wizards news, which is the problem, Micah. We've seen teams, the Indiana Pacers, Blazers, the Magic, the Celtics obviously are moving from Danny Ainge, he's retiring or whatever he's doing. Uh, you have Brad Stevens moving up to the front office, so they have a head coaching vacancy. But your Washington Wizards, Micah, not mine anymore, because I'm not a fan <laughs> until Scott Brooks is gone, but your Washington Wizards still have not fired Scott Brooks. What is the reasoning for that? Complacency and just being all right with being okay. That's all I can really say about it. Um, I kind of got the writing on the wall when Russ was talking about Brooks's impact and kind of, you know, his relationship with Russ. That's a really big thing. And honestly, I think they might try to run it back. And I know that above all everything else, Tommy said, we're not a run it back team. Well, you're not showing us you're a run it back team right now by keeping Scott Brooks. It's a little bit laziness in my eyes, and I think they're okay with being okay. Maybe they were assessing the, you know, the coaching market a little bit, seeing who would get fired, who would get moved. But there's no reason why Scott Brooks shouldn't be at least without a job right now. It's really just complacency, and I, I don't know what else to say about it. I just it's simple things that keep us at the bottom of the barrel, the mid tier, and going to keep happening unless something changes. I like what you brought up there that Tommy said he doesn't want us to be complacent; that he wants to shake things up. What does he think that? Maybe adding a defensive wing or adding uh, another shooter or adding something that he thinks will help the team will change while still, ha- while still having Scott Brooks as the coach. Like, does he think that, okay, he had to go to the three-guard lineup because we didn't have any other wings? That may be true because you didn't trust Hutchinson and Gill was really like more of a power forward. Does he think that now this team's all of a sudden going to play defense? Like, <laughs> I'm confused as to Tommy's thinking of saying on one end, this can't be a team that just runs it back, but doing everything the same just to be in the mix. It really doesn't make sense. And it almost, and I don't want to speak the evil name and the, the cursed name, but it almost reminds me of a Bruce Allen situation where he's talking about, quote unquote, the culture is good. Well, when the culture doesn't play any defense at all and you're allowing things to happen on the court that shouldn't be happening and you're playing terrible lineups and you're not putting guys in position to win, then yeah, you're going to get the same exact results when nothing changes. So things need to change. And if, you know, everything stays complacent in the next year, then it has to start from the general manager and down. It has to come from an ownership decision that, hey, we can't let this go on. But right now, the Wizards are looking to be the same team they are last year. I'm just confused as to what Tommy is really trying to do here. And there's still time to fire him. They said they're going to take a couple of weeks, take some time off, and then go and evaluate. Honestly, I think the decision should be made a lot earlier. But players are not, um, teams are not hiring coaches because the playoffs are still going on right now. But we have to get in a place where we understand where we are truly as a team. We were an eight seed that was going to get swept if it wasn't for Embiid having a knee issue in game four. We were on the road to getting swept. We weren't close to anything. We weren't a top four seed. We weren't a Milwaukee Bucks. We weren't a Phoenix Suns of last year. Like, this is the part that kills me, Micah. We had a better record going into the bubble than the Phoenix Suns. That was a team, and we'll get to the Suns. That was a team that we were on the same par where everybody was saying, oh, yeah, trade Devin Booker, um, send him to the Lakers. That was some rumors. Uh, Draymond Green got suspended from uh, tampering for the Warriors to say he should come to Golden State. 
And now that team is potentially going to the NBA Finals. And the Wizards are still in the same damn spot they were a year ago because they decided to go ahead and trade for Russell Westbrook instead of Chris Paul. Obviously, Chris Paul didn't want to come to D.C., but it's just so frustrating to see what this team potentially has become. There are some bright spots, but it's still so much needs to be figured out from this front office. And bringing Scott Brooks back, and I know we said it on last week's episode, I'm not a Wizards fan anymore if he's back for another year. Until we have a new coach, that's it for me. I can't I can't deal with another year of Scott Brooks. I'm gone if Scott Brooks is back. Catch me rooting for John Moran and the Grizzlies, a organization that's actually doing things right and handling a rebuild very, very well. Shout out to other teams in the league. Shout out to the Nuggets. I, you guys keep doing the right thing. I'm going to support you guys too. I'm going to move over to the West Coast and we're going to get it popping <laughs> because I can't take this anymore from the Wizards, bro. It's different when... You know, you're trying actively to make the moves. You know, it's different when you actually go full rebuild and you make the right moves in the draft and whatnot. But staying in the middle, it's insane. It's what put the team back for a really long time in the John Wall area. And it looks like it's happening again in the Bradley Bill era. And you just hate to see it. I can't take no more of it, bro. I can't. But that's our team. That's what we're going to have to deal with for right now. Hopefully, Scott Brooks is gone. Moving on, I want to talk about Porzingis. There was a report that came out that the Washington Wizards are monitoring the Porzingis situation. Porzingis uh, came out after they lost to the Mavericks or his agents or his people came out and said he's not happy with his role. He doesn't feel like he's the number two with Luka. Luka's ball dominant. He doesn't get in a rhythm. He feels like he's just a regular role player. And the Wizards now are looking around that Porzingis situation. The hypothetical trade that's been going around is Thomas Bryant, Chandler Hutchinson, Davis Bertans to match salaries. And the conversation was whether you add a first-round pick because the Porzingis is the better player of uh, all four, but he also has the worst contract compared to all four. So it was either you're adding putting in a first or you're putting in a second or a protected first. Just a lot of different conversations, but another pick has to be put into that um, trade package. Micah, what are your thoughts on potentially bringing in Porzingis? Now, on this deal, and I'm glad you prefaced it with this deal, I don't necessarily like it because, I mean, that's two, well, three guys, actually. It's going to be basically over $30 million. That's a cap death wish, and I know you can maneuver the cap, but we, we're we not a team that maneuvers the cap. We don't make smart deals and stuff like that. So, on paper, if you're looking by pure stats and maybe fit, it maybe makes sense. You get Davos Breton's deal off the books, and he's not really producing with us anyway. You move Thomas Bryant, and I mean, I know Thomas Bryant was a key part of the Wizards team before Russ, but he has not played with this team since, and what Daniel Gafford brings to the table is a great thing, and I know that having two centers is probably, you know, uh, two kind of similar high athletic kind of centers are really important, but the centers that played this year, I think, showed enough where you can get production that Thomas Bryant will bring out of another team, uh, out of another player, I should say. So, I mean, honestly... I wouldn't mind it, but the thing about KP is that he just doesn't have the fire in it himself, and that's really why I'm kind of like hesitant on it. If I was to say it, I would just be in the middle because Kristaps Porzingis' numbers are amazing. He's averaging basically 20 and nine. Um, he's shooting 47% from the field, 37% from three point, makes 85% of his free throws. He's pretty much efficient power forward that you would kind of want. But the problem is, I don't necessarily think that. He is taking initiative on the math scene because, I mean, yes, Luka is a ball-dominant guy, but damn, they still need somebody to produce 20 other points. We saw Hardaway pretty much have to take that reins from KP as the number two in the playoffs, and you saw what happened, the result. It was Luka versus everybody pretty much, and sometimes Hardaway. 
So, I mean, Chris Stapps, like, I would welcome Chris Stapps on the team if I saw a little bit of effort or something different because every time we see them when it matters, he hasn't mattered. And I'm a little bit iffy on that. But um, for the players that are being moved, and they're all kind of just low-level kind of guys. Uh, oh, Hutchison is a low-level guy. Bertans is okay. That's Bertans. And Thomas Bryant, yes, we love him, and he's a great energy guy, but we kind of have that with Gafford. I will consider it. But KP, he would have to totally switch his mindset to even work with the Wizards team because if he thinks he's getting antagonized by Luka, you're going to have a shit show getting antagonized by Russ. But I would really honestly take a decent look at it because a guy like that could actually bring some value to this team. I really do think so. I'm totally against this deal, actually. I think Mavericks come out on top here where Luka needed shooting, needed some help. It was Donovan Finney-Smith, Maxi Kleba, uh, Hardaway, and Porzingis were taking the threes. You not upgrade that and give him a Bertans, who Bertans shot 40% from the three this year. As much as we killed him this year, yeah. he shot 40% still from three. Not getting many open looks with two people that are very ball-dominating. You never know when you're going to get the ball. He shot 40%. Luka's going to give him a lot better looks, a lot easier looks. There were people that were wide open. Finney Smith had so many wide open looks. And now you switch that with Bertans. Thomas Bryant also a pick-and-pop option. You weren't really running pick-and-rolls with Boban. He wasn't moving enough for that. And Porzingis, who knows what he was doing at center. So I kind of like that move for the Mavericks. Porzingis, to me, it's a dead contract. Because you know next year he's going to get hurt. You know at some point he's not going to show up. It's going to take him some time right before the playoffs to get going. He has one ball-dominant guy in Luka. And now he's transitioning to two ball-dominant guys in Brad and Russ. They're not tampering their touches down for Porzingis. So how is that going to work with the Wizards? How is that going to make them a more competitive team? Porzingis isn't a good defender anymore. So he's not adding to that defense. He's making it worse. So everything that they are lacking... They're not getting a rim runner in Porzingis. They're getting a the guy that's going to pick and pop. They're essentially getting a taller Davis Bertans in Porzingis for me right now with a worse, way worse contract. Because at least Bertans, for the most part, will stay healthy. Porzingis is not going to stay healthy. Porzingis is not going to rim run. Porzingis is not going to block uh, shots. And could that mean Gafford's not playing in the final moments of a game? Probably because he has to play the five for you. So I, I don't know. I just don't like the Porzingis aspect of it. I don't like him as a player. I don't think that his contract is worth it. So I would even touch him with a 10-foot pole. Hopefully Tommy's mm-hmm. not thinking about making this move because if our big let's switch it up is going from Thomas Bryant, Daniel Gafford to Porzingis and Gafford, okay, we'll see how that works. We'll just have to score 140 points now because <laughs> the defense is getting even worse. Thomas Bryant wasn't a good defender, but at least he tried. There are many times where I just see Porzingis give up underneath the rim or just let somebody blow by him, and that's not going to work on the Wizards when their team's already bad enough on defense and the way that it's trending, we're coming right back with Scott Brooks. So <laughs> <sighs> It's always fun in Wizards world. It always gets us riled up and upset, but we're going to transition over from there, move to some NBA playoffs because this has been some fun um, playoff series in the first round. Second round hasn't been as exciting, but we've had a couple of games. So I want to start first with uh, the game that I watched last night, Mike, the Suns versus the Nuggets. The Suns are up 2-0 and rolling. They have now won four straight games where they've blown out. Game five against the Lakers in Phoenix. Game six against the Lakers in L.A. They were tied uh, close at halftime game one, but then blew the Nuggets out in game one um, in Phoenix and then completely dominated them yesterday in Phoenix. This team is something else, Micah. They are hitting, clicking on all cylinders right now. 
Where do you think they can end up? I think, honestly, they could end up in the Western Conference Finals. And it's not to say that the Nuggets aren't playing good basketball, but the Nuggets, man, they, they have a lot of unfortunate situations going on. And honestly, they're just not capitalizing on the opportunity, which for a team that capitalizes on opportunities perfectly like the Suns are now with the probably the most opportune player in NBA history, which is CP3, I don't see any reason why they wouldn't get to the Western Conference Finals. And what the Suns are doing... Wait, you don't think they can get to the Finals? Ooh, I see. That's interesting. I, I They could, and I do think they can get to the Finals. I just want to see what happens in a head-up matchup with the Jazz in, with in this, you know, because I guess I'll spoil it right now. I do think the Jazz get by the Clippers this round. And I do think that the Suns have a, a realistic chance to get by the Jazz in the Western Conference Finals. But I just want to see it first before I, you know, put it out there. I'm taking a safer route. I'm not going to put my uh, all eggs in one basket yet. But I do say the Suns will get to the Western Conference Finals. The run they're on right now is just, they're playing way better basketball. They're scoring more points. They're playing with more effort. Yes, the Nuggets are missing key players, but the Suns are doing everything they need to do. CP3 looks like CP3 of old, even a little bit more refined at times with what he's doing on the court. They just kind of just have an edge over the Nuggets, and you hate, you don't really hate to see it because this is what CP3 has always deserved, in my opinion. I just think they have more firepower. So, yeah, I would say that. The way this is trending, this ends in about six games, five games, if the Nuggets don't really get it going. I think they win a game at home, but I don't necessarily see a sweep because I do think there's enough jank in there by the Nuggets to, you know, maybe get a game in there or two. But uh, I would say this ends in five or six, man, and we see the Suns in the Western Conference Finals. I don't even think they get to six. I think it ends in five, and they're lucky if it ends in five. This is just a clear example of, they don't have enough firepower in their backcourt yep. to to replace what uh, Chris Paul and Devin Booker are doing. When you're losing Murray, Barton's been in and out. Michael Porter hasn't had a great series. Like everything's on Jokic, and it's just too much to have one player try to do everything. I saw a tweet yesterday that said, "If you're watching this series and you're the Portland Trailblazers, this has to make you feel terrible because this Nuggets team." They're good, but like obviously with Jamal Murray, they were great. And this Phoenix Suns team is great. So that shows you, similar to the Wizards, the Trailblazers, you guys are a couple of steps behind. <laughs> like if yeah. they were able to beat you in six with what they're putting up against the Phoenix Suns, you have to start reevaluating what exactly you want this future to be as a team. Like, is it really time to just try to run everything back or do you make drastic changes over there in Portland? And what's crazy is, you know, we could just touch on Portland real quick while we're there. They're already starting at least a little bit of changes, firing Terry Stotts, who by all accounts is a great coach, and he's really got them to the playoffs almost every year of the last decade. But a lot of roster changes need to happen, in my opinion. Some trades need to happen to some guys who probably wouldn't be traded in the past. They have to shake things up. But the difference between them and the Wizards is at least they started with the coach and started doing something. Made it quick too. Yeah. No, no the time night, wasted. Uh, the night before, the next morning, he was on the road packing, man. Like, that's how you do it as a real organization. Exactly. <laughs> uh, moving on, you touched on it real quick, but Clippers Jazz, you have the Jazz winning the series. Yeah, I have the Jazz winning the series. I, I do think that it does get pushed to six or seven. Uh, the Clippers have enough firepower with their two stars and kind of just the makeup of their roster and their coaching to kind of stay competitive, but I really don't believe in the Clippers. I still see the same type of issues. Um, and I do think the Jazz, and I don't necessarily, necessarily believe in the Jazz either. That this series is kind of competing with my beliefs here, but I do think that the Jazz can really, uh, you know, I, I think they can get them 
with the home court advantage in a game seven type of scenario. I think it'll take that much. It'll take one of those series where they have to go all out every single game. But I think they do it. With that series, what I saw from game one was the Jazz were rusty in the first half and they were extremely rusty, losing, uh, missing 22 straight shots. That's a little bit more than rust. They were just unlucky there. And the Clippers were not able to capitalize on it. After missing 22 straight shots, they were only up seven points. That's not going to get it done if you're the Clippers. I saw, looking back at the box scores, because I wanted to make sure that I got this right. For the Jazz, Joe Ingles from three was one for eight. Jordan Clarkson was six for 14. Um, Niang was uh, one for three. You had Royce O'Neal 0 for three. And uh, Bogdanovich three for six. Now, I don't think Ingles ever is going one for eight again in this series. Nope. I don't think Niang is going one for three in this series. I can see Jordan Clarkson going 6 for 14, 12 for 14, 0 for 14. That's just Jordan Clarkson. You get him, you get a different one each and every game. And Bogdanovich gets that uh, 3 for 6. So their three-point shooting can get a lot better. They shot 34%. That can get a lot better. Rudy Gobert didn't have a great game. 2 for 6. He only shot the ball 6 times. 10 points. He can have a lot better of a game. The Clippers, on the other hand, besides playoff P um, being 4 for 17, which can happen each and every game. Nick Batum went two for four. Leonard went one for four. Marcus Morris went one for nine. That's something you don't expect to happen often too because he did have a seven for nine game against the uh, Mavs. But Reggie Jackson went three for five. Cousins went one for two. Rondo went one for two. Cardard went four for six. So as I'm looking at it, because it was a pretty even matchup, you would think that the Jazz have more that they can improve on than the Clippers. Kawhi didn't have the greatest of game. Paul George didn't have the greatest of game. But if the Jazz role players keep it up the way they are, they had a bunch of open looks, I think the Jazz can actually low-key kind of run away with this series. Not in seven, but they make it a a six-game series, five, six-game series, and get the Clippers out of the way. Because as good as the Mavericks were, they were very Luka-centric. And yes, Donovan Mitchell did have 45, but that team is a lot more balanced, plays a lot better defense, and it's going to be a lot tougher to beat them if you go down 0-2. Exactly, and that's kind of why I picked them in seven. I do think it kind of does take seven just because of, and I mentioned it, the kind of firepower that the Clippers can have. They can have games where they absolutely light it up, and PG plays like the PG of old, and Kawhi is Kawhi. But with the Jazz, I just don't see them having a game like this. And yes, Donovan Mitchell was good for 40, but the rest of this roster didn't really show up. It was his 40, Jordan Clark is 18, an inefficient 18 at that. Of course, Bogdanovich making that's he's good for that. He's gonna be he's gonna do that. But even so, it was an inefficient forty two percent night. They're not an inefficient team, and I think they'll clean it up. So I think just because of the shooting and just playing better brand of basketball and not wasting possessions, I think they edges out in seven, man. Do you think game two is a must win for the Clippers? Game two is an absolute must win, and I think it's just because getting a game there will help them out later in the series when they need to go back and get another game there. I do think that if they let this slip, that they go back to Stable Center, and it might they might split those. So if you know you lose this game tonight, you're down 0-2 or whenever it is you you lose or you're down 0-2, you probably end up in a game five scenario down three one, and that's just terrible for the Clippers. I don't think they have the the wherewithal or the will to even get back from that, and I think that's a scenario where it ends relatively early for the Clippers. So tonight is a game, uh, or the next game they play is a game uh, must win. And really from there, the series is kind of is kind of back and forth, in my opinion. Another question, because I do think the Clippers are the most interesting team in this playoffs. 
yeah, they beat the Mavericks and they avoided complete disaster. But if they're to lose in the second round again, do you see them breaking up the team and just trying something else different next year? I do think that this veteran-centric style of what they're putting on the table, I think this totally breaks up. I don't necessarily think that Paul George and Kawhi Leonard get moved. Paul George, if anybody gets moved, Kawhi Leonard, he's not moving anywhere. But I think some of the role players are going to, you're going to see a drastic change. Um, guys like Patrick Beverly, he didn't need necessarily need to be on this roster. I see Boogie down there playing, logging some minutes. That was just because, I mean, he got bought out or whatever the case was with him. Rajon Rondo, these are all, the Clippers moves have been kind of the play the Lakers and match their veteran skill with their veteran skill and overtake them. But they haven't even faced the Lakers yet. So I think going forward and really how the West is moving, they're going to have to make some roster changes. But I think Kawhi Leonard and Paul George are probably safe to stay. It's just, uh, excuse me, safe to stay. It's just kind of the role players. They got to get a lot younger and a lot faster and really just play a more high energy basketball. I think Paul George is gone if they lose this series. It's possible. If they lose this series and he's still continuing to shoot four for 17 from the field. Oh, yeah, he's out. Kawhi is going to be like, hey, man, get this man out of here. I don't care where, but get me somebody else. And you brought it up. The Patrick Beverly's of the world, Rondo's, the Boogie Cut. Like, you got to get younger. Luke Kennard, I, shout out to Ty Lue. That's when I know, like, that's a good coach. Yeah. He understood in game five, game six, game seven. He was like, oh, I'm missing something here. I can get with Luke Kennard. Plays him in game one, two. He goes seven for nine from the field. Like, that's a smart coach right there. Those are people that you really do appreciate because they are making constant adjustments throughout the series. Patrick Beverly started game one. He did not play like the rest of the series. And then he, he's right back for um the game one of the Utah Jazz. Boogie Cousins didn't touch the floor in the first series, but he got great minutes in um the game one against the Jazz. It's just great coaches are able to always mess with their rotations and get it to a place where everything is nice and set. I think the Clippers will just change up a little bit. Um maybe get Paul George <clears throat> get Paul George out of there and then try to figure out where they go from there because they do have some good pieces. It just it doesn't feel like it fits all the time. It just feels like sometimes it's just one thing off that's keeping them from being that elite team that they're supposed to be. Moving to the Hawks and the Sixers. 1-1, great first-round series, my favorite so far. Hawks go and stun the Sixers in Game 1. Sixers come back, back and forth, and the Sixers with Shake Milton run away with it in Game 2. What are your thoughts on this series, and where do you see it going? The true battle of styles, man. Um, the Hawks, high energy, kind of high pace, led by Trey Young. Really great roster versus the Sixers, who and we talked about a lot last series because they were playing the Wizards, but methodical pace, wants to play a lot of defense. But the thing about the Sixers that is really, really interesting, when they're role players, they're true role players, Shake Milton, Tyrese Maxey, Korkmaz, when they get hot, Seth Curry went healthy. When they get extremely hot, you're not beating them. And I think that in game one, we really saw the difference in teams. And I think Doc Rivers is capitalizing on that. And I think he'll continue to capitalize on it this series. So in game one, Hawks extremely hot. They were going to win that game the whole time. But they let the Sixers creep back in. And that's when I was, when I saw that. I was just like, you know what? They're not necessarily, they don't have the, the coaching and the leadership. And Nate McMillan is a great coach. He'll be hired as their full-time. He's just their interim like, uh, right now after Lloyd Pierce got fired. But there's a difference here. There's a difference between the one and the five seed. And the Sixers, they are the one seed for a reason, man. And just seeing that comeback, and I was like, okay, I kind of know what's happening in game two and forward. I think the 76ers will be able to take control of this series, even going to ATL. I do think that 
you know, they put up a, the Hawks put up a fight, but I think this series ends in six and it goes to the Sixers, honestly, just because the Sixers just, the defense is going to be able to take them above and beyond. It's not like the Hawks are a bad team any right. They're actually overplaying what they thought they could, but that is not ready yet. And I think the Sixers are going to live up to what they should have been doing finally and get to that Eastern Conference Finals and have a great chance to at least win two games against the Nets in the next round. But yeah, the Sixers take this in uh, seven, but it's not bad for the Hawks. This is a great foundation for a young team, really, in year two to three. We clowned Ben Simmons game one. Yep. Why didn't you want Trey? Why didn't you want to do this? You scared of Trey, this and that? He put Trey in prison Boy. game two. <laughs> and I honestly thought this was going to be a series. I don't think so anymore. I don't think this is going to be a series at all. I think the way the Sixers figured out in the fourth quarter how to play the Hawks is going to keep on translating. They're going to completely dominate them on the glass. They're going to play stringent defense, make somebody else be the playmaker on the Hawks, and that makes them totally inefficient on offense. I think the Sixers completely roll in this next um this next couple of games. And, yeah, like you said, they go on to play the Nets. Do we need to talk Bucks nets Look, man. Like, this, they, <laughs> let's, let's run it down real quick. Bud is going to be gone. They're going to switch up some things. The Nets are the better team. And, yeah, like, do you have any other thoughts besides that? Uh, Nets and four, that's it. That's all I got. Yeah, that's that's all I got. It's not even worth my time. The Nets are just clicking on all cylinders. They're a perfect team. Firepower everywhere. KD's playing like the best player in the world. And yeah, that's that. So that's going to wrap up NBA. When we come back, we're going to switch over to our favorite team, a team we love to talk about now, the Washington football team. We'll be back. Welcome back. Micah, a mandatory minicamp ended this week, uh, Tuesday through Thursday. They just finished wrapping it up. It was a fun time. Love seeing all the social media stuff. We had the memes from Ryan Fitzpatrick and Terry McLaurin with their uh, first day of school. Um, you got some great press conferences, some great notes from coaches and coordinators. So I want to basically break down what we saw from mandatory minicamp. Well, let me not say what we saw, but what we saw tweeted from all the reporters at uh, mandatory We'll be minicamp. there soon, bro. We'll be there soon. <laughs> We'll be there very soon. Starting off with offense, did you get anything, see anything on Twitter from uh, the reporter saying that intrigued you about the offense? You know, there was actually a couple things. And finally, for the first time, none of it is really alarming. No big injuries. Nobody just being a complete bust and looking terrible and looking lost out there. But there's a lot of battling out there. And we'll break it down. We'll talk about it. First things first, let's talk about the quarterback situation, man. Taylor Heineke, they're saying it's reported there's been articles kind of written about is kind of the consensus going on at Twitter that this week Taylor Heineke outplayed Ryan Fitzpatrick of course this is just a mini camp this is OTAs this really doesn't mean anything but it is interesting because this is going to lead to an open competition in training camp as Ron Rivera has basically been alluding to this whole time I think that's kind of been their plan that to me is just really really interesting and I mean you can talk about it real quick if you want but I, I do think that this is going to bring out the best in both of them. And I kind of want to see what happens week one from this. I mean, like I said, I, you can talk about it real quick, but I'm just really interested in that before I get to other positions because I think this is going to go different than a lot of people are thinking. So with the Fitzpatrick and Heineke situation, do you think right now that Fitzpatrick is, no matter what happens in camp really, besides Heineke looking like the next era Rodgers, Fitzpatrick is definitely starting week one. I can't say that in full confidence, and I think he should just because he is the veteran, and I think he, at all, like, if you break down everything, I think he probably gives them a better chance to win right now, 
But I wouldn't necessarily, and this is why I say I can't put my full vote of confidence in that. I wouldn't be surprised if they try out Taylor Heineke just to see what they can get from him. And if all else fails, you have a relief pitcher like Ryan Fitzpatrick. And the last thing, and I'm not necessarily putting, once again, all my eggs in one basket on this because you're not treating this season like an MOB season or NBA season. You're just trying stuff out because you only have 17 games to make this work this year. So I don't necessarily think they're going to experiment with things. But the preseason is going to be really interesting because I think they both end up being starter and both get starter looks at the preseason. They both play with the first unit and things like that. I would say that Ryan Fitzpatrick is probably a better option to start week one. But if Taylor Heineke is just undeniable, then he'll be your week one starter. And then you have the best backup in the league besides Teddy Bridgewater and Ryan Fitzpatrick. The most interesting thing that I found from this is Kyle Allen wasn't really in the mix. And they traded for Kyle Allen while Heineke was on the street. So what Heineke must have done in the couple of weeks he was there last year and what he's done in OTAs and minicamp must really be blowing not only Allen, but Fitzpatrick out of the water. Because to me, Ryan Fitzpatrick is a clear-cut starter week one. There's nothing really going to change that except for I do think Heineke having to be Aaron Rodgers, Tom Brady, one of the greats in training camp. And it's just like, okay, this is undeniable. So for it to even be a conversation now, you have to re- feel really good. Like if Ryan Fitzpatrick does start to become Fitz tragic, okay, we can go to Heineke. And unfortunately, with the way that this team is, we're going to be in a situation where all three of these quarterbacks play next season. I don't think that's, I don't yeah. think it's going to be a big surprise when all three of them at some point end up playing because that's what QBs do in Washington. Nobody plays one full season. So, it was interesting to see from, especially from reporters saying that, oh, we have Heineke. He's playing better than Fitzpatrick. And I did read an article where Fitzpatrick said that he was throwing the ball to where, um, the ball was supposed to go, not where though he would do it in a game because he wants to get that, um, he wants to get that synergy with the wide receivers. So we may see a little bit different Fitzpatrick in training camp, but I do think that was the most important thing on offense that we saw. Um, in the first couple of days, let's switch over to defense. What are your main observations that you got from defense? Um, first of all, I saw a clip of a linebacker actually playing the ball. Shout out Cole Holcomb, almost getting a one hand pick. I I know it was crazy. Um, shout out to John Bostic for missing a day because that might be the situation that we all need, where he doesn't keep progressing even though it's mini camp. Because man, I I don't want to see a, a John Bostic linebacker situation. Um, but the biggest thing I saw. And I think it's going to be really, really key. And, you know, we, we talk about mini camp, but you don't necessarily want to over, you know, over hype what's going on. But I'm hyping this. It's Benjamin St. Juice, bro. It, oh, man. man. I, I was going to bring it. I was going to bring that up. But, bro, it, and we talked about it, the possibility if he was ready as a rookie to, you know, step outside and cover receivers. Well, not only was he covering the rookie receivers like Diami Brown very well, but he was making PBUs on all pro PFF's finest, Terry McLaurin. And it's not just stopping with that. He's, I mean, Ron had great, Ron Rivera had great things to say about him. And one of the best things I, I heard, or at least I kind of, you know, processed in my own brain was that his feel for the position is already basically a, a guy who's not a rookie. He Coming in, we knew he was going to be able to be a long corner and play great defense, great man defense. But it looks like we're turning into a press man. Team, yeah. And, like, and just quick and, observation. And no, that's a perfect observation. And I'm glad you brought it up because what better press man guy do you want than William Jackson on one side covering your ex and a six two 
whatever, however, uh, however much Benjamin St. Juice weighs, rookie, with inside Kendall Fuller, with the D-line, I think it's a perfect situation. And we needed to kind of add press man to that because for everything good that the Washington football team did, they did play a lot, a lot, a lot of zone. It's just because they didn't have the man personnel. But when you add guys who can play purely man at a high level, then you have, you really have the formula to almost be a Patriots kind of style defense where your pass rush and your press man is going to disrupt the entire game. And I think that's the key, and I think that's the evolution of this defense going forward. You brought it up. You said everything perfectly there. Not much to add. But turning into a press man team only makes the defense more dangerous. If you truly believe that, okay, we can send somebody almost every time, and I trust all my dogs back there. You're not going to be able to double-team Chase Young. You're not going to be able to double-team Jonathan Allen, Deron Payne, Montez Sweat. Everybody has to go one-on-one, and I trust that D-line. Every time they have a one-on-one battle, somebody's winning up front, and somebody's disrupting it. So seeing that Benjamin St. Juice was balling, and it wasn't just against second-teamers. He clamped uh, Terry a couple of times. He had one against um Troy. Uh, not um. He had one against uh. Was it Sims? I think. Um. Yep. He had we had one against Diami Brown, but Diami Brown did get him back. Um. Today they those report there was a long touchdown on him, but he's a rookie and he's still learning. If they think that he can develop into a guy starting this uh this season, Kendall Fuller can go to free safety or slot. You can just be so interchangeable everywhere, and it just makes the defense all that more dangerous. For my observation, I want to talk about Hudson, uh, Kaliki Hudson, who wasn't somebody that we really talked about besides a special teamer last year, but has started to get some real run because, like you said, John Bostic is out. If now you can turn your linebacking core into a young, fast linebacking core, that is something I'll be interested to see because we all thought that there was no way that John Bostic wasn't going to play the middle. But it looks like Jamin Davis is playing that middle now and is going to be that game record record type of guy for you. If that's the case, then having Cole Holcomb on one side, having Kaliki Hudson on the other, and just having speed, but also people who are able to recover in what we saw with um, Holcomb down the middle, down the seam with the uh, pass of John Bates, breaking it up with one hand. If we can finally cover tight ends, that makes, again, the defense all that much better because the middle of the field is not going to be exploited. So... It's very early, but I am going to make a prediction that John Bostic is on the team, but by the end of the season, he's not starting for the Washington football defense. I think that's a great prediction. And just a little bit more on Kaliki Hudson. He's a natural 4-5 guy. He's actually kind of like a big hybrid safety, but he has the mind of a linebacker. Only really like 225. I'm sure that he put on a couple pounds because he got the call, you know, that he could possibly start this year. So he's probably really coming in realistically at like a 230. And that's your will linebacker, your weak side guy who kind of needs to be fast, cover wherever you need to be covered. That's perfect. And a kind of another note on the linebacker situation, I think that if everything goes right and everything we just talked about, I think that frees up a spot where they allow Landon Collins to do anything on the field. And he's kind of just their ace. Kind of how the Cardinals kind of should be using Isaiah Simmons as kind of just a do-it-all guy like he played in college. You know, give him some safety reps, but really have him primarily in the box, blitzing, covering running backs, just being a hound on the ball. I think that frees up everything to allow Landon Collins to do that because I don't necessarily think he's starting at safety and he's not starting at linebacker because he's never been a linebacker in his life. But if you will, if you get Kaliki Hudson in there as your will, you have Cole Holcomb as your Sam, and you have Jamin Davis, who's going to be the Luke Kuechly of this defense. I feel like then you have one of the biggest weapons 
in the league just kind of out there as a guy like Landon Collins, if he's truly healthy, that he can wreck an entire game just off his blitzes and just his energy alone. So the sky's the limit for this defense. Ron talked about being a, you know, a kind of a hybrid defense kind of all around, and they're really building that. And from what we're seeing so far, they're living up to that. Yeah, it's interesting because we were wondering, why isn't another linebacker signed? Why haven't we added to that? Because right. that was obviously a weak spot. But if Ron himself thinks that, okay, I have guys in here that are going to be able to um, produce, then there's no need to bring an outsider or another that guy while wow, you can help just develop a guy in-house. I also want to point out uh, Derek Forrest. He had a good first two days. I saw a lot of tweets from him. So he's making an impact for himself. He's a special teams guy because that safety room is packed right now. But, hey, we saw with Cam Curl. You never know what's going to happen. Injuries happen. And if you get your chance to make it on the field, you can end up staying there. So I also wanted to shout out um, Derek Forrest and then Deami Brown for having that long touchdown catch on uh, Benjamin St. Juice. That's what we want Deami Brown from. Yep. But speaking of the wide receivers real quick, Micah. This has been the biggest discussion, I, I feel like, for the past month or so, ever since they drafted Deami Brown and set, signed Adam Humphreys. You have, right now, Terry, you have Curtis Samuel, you have Humphreys, and you have Brown as your four locks to make the team. I would add Cam Sims in there. I think you would yep. too, right, Micah? Yep, absolutely. So that's five, that's five locks. Usually they carry six wide receivers, but there could be a situation where they carry seven. Between... Harmon, Sims, Isaiah Wright, AGG, yep. all these guys. Who are that one or two you think round up the wide receiver room? So I think that they carry seven on the 53, and they carry at least one or two on a practice squad, and there's probably one or two guys who get outright cut. So I'll just break it down real quick. On the 53, you mentioned Cam Sims. Amazing kind of story for him. He showed that he can actually ball, but before he showed he could ball on offense, he was absolutely playing lights out in the gunner, and I think that's his position to hold for the rest of his career, really, unless it's injuries. But that's a great number five receiver to have. That's an amazing number five receiver to have, given the fact that we made it work with him at the number two. So that's your five receiver. At your six receiver, I actually have, and this is, man, this is kind of hard for me because I do think that they're looking at the Kelvin Harmon and AGG um, matchup, I would say, as like two guys that are pretty much similar. But I have. I have to go with Kelvin Harmon on this, making the 53 as your number six receiver. Because I do think that he uh, brings, he provides a lot of Z value, like a, a outside kind of mainstay. But he's also a big enough body where if you need something going in the run game or you have an extremely big package and you need a guy out there, he's going to be able to handle that for you very well. So I think his size and what looks he could possibly bring, I think that really is a, a value to that. And then as a number six receiver, once again, amazing. And I said that they carry seven because they're going to need a kick returner. And none of the guys we mentioned are going to be designated kick returners. Dax. Now, I would love that. I, w I would love Dax to be the kick returner. We've kind of been hearing that, that basically every single day <laughs> he's been catching kicks. But I also think that they didn't just draft this guy in the seventh round for no reason. And I don't want to talk about the old regime. And I even mentioned that. That guy, Bruce Allen, earlier when we were talking Wizards, which I shouldn't have done that. God, that was bad. But, yeah, I, <laughs> I do think that he ends up kind of in a Trey Quinn situation where, okay, we spent a seventh on this guy. He produced a lot in college. He has a lot of intangibles. Let's put him out there. And I think that Dax Miller ends up being the returner. It's not because he's an explosive guy, but, God damn it, he's going to catch the ball. 
He's going to catch the ball, and I think that's enough <laughs> for them right now where they feel safe enough to put him at a returner or they allow him to, you know, field kicks or whatever the case might be. He's not even seeing a lot of field, uh, kicks fielded anymore. It's more just like catch the ball, get the offense on the field, let's move. He's a smart enough guy to make that decision. And now we get to the situation I laid out, and I know I'm carrying on, but this is a really, it's probably a lot of really, comp- uh, a lot of competition going on here. But this is the most complex. Yeah, yeah, this is the most dense position on the team. Yeah, and it's really, it's really, really difficult to make these cuts because I mean, from Cam Sims down, all these guys are relatively the same talent, and it's kind of just making it fit for what your roster needs. So I'll go with the outright cuts first. I do think that Steven Sims gets the boot, and he's a talented guy, but way too inconsistent to make this roster right now. Especially with what he put on tape last year. I mean, he can do anything he wants in camp. He can look like Devin Hester in camp. Well, if he looks like Devin Hester in camp, he might make the roster. But he's not going to look like Devin Hester. He can do a lot of great things, but not on this team anymore. And I do think that Isaiah Wright gets cut. And I know, well, actually, no. If we're counting like DeAndre Carter or something, one of those guys gets cut. I would say that if you want to, you know, take the practice squad, uh, practice squad approach, I think DeAndre Carter and Steven Sims get cut. And I think that Isaiah Wright, gets on the practice squad with Antonio Ganny Golden. Um and you can practice squad Ganny Golden obviously because he's only a second year guy. And the same with Isaiah Wright. I think those two guys at your practice squad bring a lot of value to the practice squad. Um guys who can, you know, get called up to play but also give the defense a lot of looks in the season because you gotta have a scout team. But everybody else on you know, from those guys and on, they're not they're kinda just camp bodies and we see that a lot. Teams will bring on seven to ten receivers for just camp. And I think guys like, I mean, DeAndre Carter, whoever else, Isaiah, uh, excuse me, Isaiah Wright, but Steven Sims, they all are talented guys, but they're not roster guys. So, um, yeah, I think those are the guys that make the roster. Everybody that said that would. And I think you improve your receiver room exponentially. Even if you don't have a top 10 quarterback, you at least have a top 15 receiver core now. And that's really important. So you kind of brought up why, how I came up with my wide receiver room but you didn't use it for another reason. You brought up Bruce Allen. And I think the clear distinction here is who are Ron's guys and who are Bruce Allen people and people of the past. I love what Kelvin Harmon did in his first year, but the ACL injury and not being a Ron guy, I think he may be on his way out. And not being cut, I think he's a practice squad guy. Steven Sims, I think we can both agree, there's no room for Steven Sims on this team. I just don't see it. I don't, I don't know. Maybe he changes in training camp and he looks great, but I don't think he's going to be on this team. Um, Cam Sims, obviously we said is that number five. I have him steadily in there. AGG. I don't think that they're giving up on AGG. I think he's going to be that, uh, that last guy that you have as that number six for you. And then if they do bring a seven, it's going to be Isaiah Wright because of his ability to, um, field and everything i think but i think dax and this is tough yeah i think because they did draft like there's a reason why they picked dax in the seventh round too like it's not just for camp body oh which is yeah because if they're just gonna bring a camp body they might as well brought in another linebacker to see what he's about i guess we have to see what happens here but i'll go with my i'll go with this okay terry curtis humphreys brown Cam Sims is five, AGG as six, and if there's a seven, it's going to be Isaiah Wright. You know what? Yeah, let's do that. If there's a seven, it's going to be Isaiah Wright. So we'll have those seven. I think they'll, I think they'll end up taking seven just because of how deep this position is yep. and they need multiple things. 
So it's going to be interesting to see how they want to play, how they want to play all of this out. But it's a very deep team at now multiple positions. Not something we could have said <laughs> for the longest time because they did struggle at just so many uh, different positions. They built up the D line. Linebackers are getting better. Corners obviously feels like it's um, it's pretty productive now. You have uh, safeties that's a overpopulated. Even quarterbacks, even though they're not great, you have multiple quarterbacks that you can go to that you feel um, comfortable with. So my last question before we get out of here, Micah, what is the absolute ceiling? Like best case scenario, everything works out for them. Where do you see this Washington football team? I see this team, honestly, and without bias, winning the division again. If everything works out, if you get top 20 quarterback play, we're not asking for anything crazy, top 20 quarterback play, you get a top 15 receiver room. You bring back a great O-line. Um, the tight end position, if they are consistent enough and everything happens right with Logan Thomas and his development and a second tight end, whether that be John Bates, whoever else kind of takes it over, maybe Ricky Seals-Jones, who knows. And then, of course, the defense. I'm not even worried about the defense. They're going to show up. But if you get consistent play from the linebackers and they don't get absolutely torched in coverage, and if they find a spot for the free safety, man, if everything goes right, I see them winning 10 to 11 games, honestly. And really, of course, it's going to be driven by this defense. And their schedule is is really, really hard. They have a lot of tough games. But I think that they have the ability to play not just competitively, but beat a lot of these teams that they wouldn't necessarily beat in the past. So I would have them winning the division, playing in the wild card round. But I do think that they make it three to four game improvement. I really do. A lot of those games last year were wasted on quarterback play. Flat out, bad quarterback play and not having the depth on the offense to compete. Well, they fixed that. I really do think they fixed that. And I think this team can win about 10 to 11 games, realistically, without bias. I still think that you're kind of scarred by the Washington. Like, you you still had our max as being a division winner title. That's how bad the Washington football team has been for so many <laughs> years. I said the best of the best. What it, And you were like, yeah, the division. That's how, that's how you know we're scarred. So when I was thinking about this, I was like, okay, what is the best case scenario? Chase Young is a potential defensive player of the year. Benjamin St. Juice is starting at corner, so that means uh, Kendall Fuller is the top slot guy in the NFL. On offense, you have Deami Brown uh, really showed out in year one, uh, similar to Terry's type of production. Antonio Gibson is one of the best all-purpose backs in the NFL. Ryan Fitzpatrick was able to play a full 17-game uh, schedule and did not get hurt, did not have Fitz tragic. And that led me to being in the NFC Championship game. If everything goes right, this is the complete and absolute ceiling. Because I look at it like this. I don't think that they're a Super Bowl team. I don't think they're as good as the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. We have to see the Green Bay Packers uh, situation. But besides that, it's not a lot of teams that are surefire, okay, these, this team's going to be better. Can they be the San Francisco 49ers? Yeah, I think, they can, I think they can be exactly like the 49ers, where the 49ers were a team that... They just got mediocre QB player, a little bit better than mediocre from Jimmy G, and they found themselves in the Super Bowl. Saints are no longer a team to be feared because Drew Brees is gone. So there are not many teams in the NFC where you're like, oh, I'm so scared. Obviously, you have the Cardinals and the Seahawks and the 49ers, but none of these teams are true, just will beat you. Will There's no shot. There's only one team I think about, and that's the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So if you don't see them in one of your two first games, then I see them as the NFC Championship team. As crazy is, now, I am a little bit scarred. You're right. I, I don't, it's hard <laughs> to put full confidence 
into the Washington football team. But I do think that they can make a realistic run, not just at a divisional game. I think a divisional game is almost a given at this point, how strong their defense is going to be. There is a chance that they can make an NFC Championship game. And I won't say that that Super Bowl thing, like I, I don't think we're there yet. I think that comes with a either your defense has to be the ex, has to be the best in the league. Two thousand Ravens. It has to be it has, has to be, be. two thousand Ravens with Trent Dilfer, or you have to have a little bit more explosive, a little bit more consistency on the offensive side, and we just have yet to see that from this team. But I do think that that divisional game is going to tell us a lot because they're going to get there. But it's just about whoever they play. They got to have a a Buck style performance, but it can't be a fluky type of game. It has to be dominant. It has to really, really show the strength of this team. And if they could beat whoever the divisional opponent is, then yeah, they're going to be in that conference championship sitting pretty in a year two of a real in year two of a rebuild, looking like wow, what else comes from here? I, I think that is actual, actually in the realm of possibility. But I think a division game is a given. I, I would say that. I, I would say. Everything goes right. They're playing in the divisional round with a chance to be a game out from the Super Bowl. Yeah, and I wanted to end the podcast on something positive, so that was a little bit fun. Uh, mini camp did look to be something that was great for the team. Everybody's positive. Everything's good coming out of Washington Football Park. So next they'll be going to training camp in Richmond, and then we'll be getting ready for the season. Uh, a month, a little bit uh, over, a little bit, yeah, about a month away from. That start in July, and then once you get it, you have your preseason games, which will be actually important to watch the QB play. And then we're into the season, and it's going to be a long one. It's going to be tough. We have a lot of tough matchups this year, but I'm really positive about this Washington football team, and I haven't felt that way in a long time. But that'll do it for this episode. I know this was a little bit of a long one, but we've been away for a week. We we haven't had time to talk to you. So for Mike and for Micah, we'll see you on the next episode. Peace. Peace.